turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our text this morning is zeroing in on verses 45 through 49, almost through chapter 15. But let's read together, beginning in verse 42. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's pray. God, we open your word knowing that it is your voice that we need to hear, not mine. And so we ask that through the spirit of God, as your word is proclaimed, that your people would be hearers and doers of the word. And they would be blessed for what they hear this morning as they put it to practice in their lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Before I get started, Francis, could you run that water up to me? It's right on my chair. I forgot to grab it. Thank you. The science fiction movies, right, it does the best to predict the future. Sometimes it can be eerily accurate. And other times it can be way off the mark. Um... 2001, A Space Odyssey. Just saw that recently. It was made in 1968. It predicted with accuracy many things that we have today. Tablet computers, video calls, Siri-like artificial intelligence. But we're still waiting on that convenient space travel, those lunar colonies that were supposed to happen over 20 years ago. Back to the Future 2 came out in 1989. In their vision of the year 2015, seven years ago, uh, we may not have self-drying clothes, flying cars, or hoverboards quite yet, but they did depict wearable technology in the movie that was something along the lines of Google Glass that came out just a few years ago. In 1981, the movie Escape from New York depicted Manhattan Island in the year 1997 as a place where crime was so bad that they just walled it off and made it into a prison colony. In 1982, when the movie Blade Runner came out, they depicted a 2019 with us getting around in flying cars. A lot of people want these flying cars. We're not quite, we don't have self-driving cars yet. I wouldn't ride in one of those, let alone a flying car. They also predicted androids living amongst us 
off-world space colonies. And they also predicted that RCA and Atari would still be giant companies in the year 2019. Way off on that one. See, the Bible, it does not attempt to predict the future like a movie with varying degrees of accuracy. When the Bible tells us something about the future, we can trust it because it, like the rest of Scripture, it was written, and the word would be God-breathed, by God, who is, as he describes himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's above and over it all and sees it all. Scripture is inerrant. It's perfect. It's true. Whenever God reveals something about the future, we can trust that it's not something trivial that we should just shrug our shoulders at and, 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 and move on with life. We should consider it as essential knowledge to living faithful and fruitful lives as Christians. And such is the case with our knowledge of our own resurrection. Does it make a difference that we know that our resurrection is sure and that our bodies will be transformed from these perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural, mortal, and earthy bodies that w- into imperishable, glorious, powerful, immortal, supernatural bodies that are fit for a heavenly existence? Does that matter? Well, Paul says it does. In fact, he concludes this whole lengthy section On the resurrection, specifically our resurrection, with, look at verse 58. He concludes it with this. This is his conclusion after all his talking about our own resurrection. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Have you ever considered that maybe this is the reason why you're tossed here and there by the whims and ways of the world? Are are you abounding in the trivial, in the insignificant, short-lived things of the world instead of abounding in the work of the Lord? See, Paul would suggest the reason is because you've forgotten that all this All this is passing away. Where are you storing up your treasure? That's that's really not a very hard question to find the answer to. Just look at where you're investing your time and your efforts. Jesus said in Matthew 6, He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus says whatever we focus on dictates our actions. And when we focus on earthly success and wealth and happiness... We're going to give all our efforts towards earthly matters. However, when we focus on God's priorities and God's realities, such as the certainty of our bodily resurrection, 
our actions will reflect different priorities. Now, Paul told us back in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he says, the form of this world is passing away. See, the moment that you take your last breath, earthly treasure will not matter to you anymore. So Paul here, he's just reflecting what Jesus urged each of us to do. To think beyond your last breath to eternity. And when our focus is on what is to come, rather than this brief life when it is over, our lifestyles will begin to reflect that perspective. Living in light of the resurrection, it doesn't make serving your Lord any easier. You understand that? He still calls it toil. But he says that toil in the Lord will not be in vain. The effort and the energy that you expend in these exhaustible, breakable bodies, whatever you do in serving the Lord in these bodies will not be forgotten and it will not be in vain. And one of the first blessings you have is that if you gave everything in this body and your body finally gave up, guess what? You've got a new one coming that will never fail, never grow tired or weary, and never lead you astray ever again. So we've been looking at what Paul tells us about our own resurrection in these verses, 35 to 49. And this is the third sermon entitled, Your Resurrection Body, Fashioned by God to Glorify Christ Forever. And Paul's been showing the Corinthians, and then by extension us as well, that God will resurrect and transform our earthly bodies into ones fashioned by His power to glorify Christ forever. And we've learned several applications so far from our text. We first listened to the skeptics' objections, right? We needed to hear their objections to wonder if any of their objections are actually our objections. That a resurrection body, you know, it's just not probable, let alone possible. But someone will say, he says in verse 40, uh, 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You know, to say that God who created everything from nothing can't give us bodies in the resurrection, that just comes from a heart of unbelief. To think of spending an eternity in bodies, you know, like the ones that we presently have, that, you know, that is not probable. But Paul says that's really just the result of thinking like a fool who fails to consider God in their assessment of reality. And we need only look to the plant kingdom to see God's creative power on display. And our second application regarding the resurrection body is, is to learn from the Father's illustration of the seed and the plant, which he talks about in verses 36 to 38. The seed that goes in the ground, well, it must first die to come to life. The plant that grows out of the ground is very different from the seed that went into the ground. Even though it looks very different, both the seed and the plant have continuity. Everyone knows that if you sow a grain of wheat in the soil, you're going to get a stalk of wheat, not barley, not flax. The process is, is so natural that no one questions it. 
And yet it takes place by the creative power of God. He says, that which you sow, verse 37, you don't sow the body which is to be, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. That comes from God. Paul says the same process occurs in the resurrection. Our natural bodies must first die. But in the resurrection, our bodies will be transformed according to God's will and by God's power into a body that's in a different form. One that is suited now for a heavenly existence. Though the form is different, the identity remains the same. We will recognize one another in heaven, though it it may take for some telling of us. Brother said last week, I thought this was so good. He said, some of you out here are going to have someone who comes up to you and says, Dad, it's me. And it's that child that you lost in the womb. Or maybe that child that was aborted, that you have regretted all your days. Dad, it's me. Mom, it's me. You're going to see them again. How beautiful is that? In verses 39 through 44, Paul again, he points to the universe that God created. The differences between creatures on the earth and the stars and the planets and the heavens to to further convince us that God will have no problem creating bodies that will have continuity to our present bodies and yet at the same time will also be wonderfully different in form. And these observations should help us thirdly to look forward to our body's transformation. Look forward your body's transformation. God has made an incredible variety of creatures that all share this planet, each with the flesh, he calls it, that's appropriate for their respective domains. You know, man and beasts for life on the earth. Birds have a flesh that's suited for soaring through the heavens. Fish have a flesh that's, that's appropriate for life underwater and so forth. And then he says, look at the heavens. Right? They're also filled with a variety of bodies. And each of them differ in the glory from earthly bodies. And they also differ in glory from one another. And in the same way, he says, we can expect the resurrected body to be unlike anything known to us on earth. Because it's going to be fit for a heavenly existence. God will do the same thing in the resurrection. He's going to transform our natural bodies, which is presently suited for earthly life, to spiritual bodies suited for heavenly existence. The body that He's going to prepare for you, it's going to be transformed in glory and purpose and quality and existence. Our bodies that are perishable and dishonorable and weak And natural, they're going to be transformed by God's power into bodies that are imperishable and gloriously powerful for an eternity of serving and glorifying the Lord forever. And so now in verses 45 through 49, this is our text this morning, Paul is giving the Corinthians his final answer to this question about what kind of body which the dead will be raised with. And with what Paul says here about your resurrection body, I hope it will cause you to fourthly long for your Savior's appearing. Long for your Savior's appearing. See, the underlying reason why we should all long for Christ's return is because of what Paul said in verse 22 
Back in verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, death is the great equalizer. No one escapes it. All will experience it. You might not face death until you're 95. But then again, there's no guarantees. You might face death at 9 or 19 or 39. All will die. And, and as Paul is arguing in this chapter, all will be raised from the dead. And, and the body that you now have, it will be radically transformed by God's power in the resurrection. And it's going to be unlike the one that you have now. And the hope is that it will be a better body. Wonderfully designed by God to not be subject to sickness or pain or degeneration or death ever again. In fact, what Paul is telling us here is that our bodies will be conformed to Christ's glorious body. You see this in verse 44. That's really what he's arguing in 44 through 49, but he takes it a step at a time because remember, he's convincing the Corinthians that they will have a body in the resurrection. That's what they doubted. What kind of body? That's what he's answering. And he takes it step by step. And we're going to take it step by step. So we kind of get into the details here about the body that we will have, that it will be Christ's, as like Christ's glorious body. And so... He says in verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So, um, remember, their confusion was about the nature of the resurrection body. They believed in the resurrection of Christ. They believed in their own resurrection. They just couldn't conceive of there being a body in the resurrection. So that's the, the specific question now that Paul is answering. So he's building off their belief in the resurrection, but he's showing them that since there is a natural body, that's the one we have right here, there's also a spiritual body. And he's making it clear that there are, there's two types of bodies. Christian, there's two types of bodies. There's the natural and there's the spiritual. The natural body is sown... He uses that terminology like a seed. It's sown suitable for an earthly existence. The spiritual body, though, it's raised suitable for the life to come in heaven. And Paul is linking the two. How? By means of the resurrection. See, because we have a body, we will be raised with a body. The first one was sown. The second one is raised. The first one was natural. The second one is spiritual. The first one was suited for life in this world. The second one is suited for the world to come. And he calls this resurrection counterpart to the natural body, he calls it a spiritual body. And now, what do you think of when you think of a spiritual body? You probably think of something that's ethereal, ghost-like, right? Non-physical, right? We... We see all the paranormal stuff, loads of it on television, all, and it's all ethereal stuff, right? It's never flesh and blood. And so when we hear the term spiritual, we're, we're probably being influenced more so by Hollywood than anything else. And we think, well, are we going to be this wispy, non-tangible 
beings in the future. Well, we know that's not what Paul is pointing at when he uses this term spiritual. See, if Paul were trying to say that our resurrection bodies were non-physical, right? Remember, because he's giving counterparts here. He says natural counterpart is spiritual. Well, if he was trying to say that spiritual means non-physical, then what would he have said? He wouldn't have said there's a spiritual body. He would have said there, you have a physical body. That's what he would have said. Because the counterpart then would have been a non-physical body. But he didn't say there is a spiritual body. He said there's a spiritual body. Or excuse me, a natural body in verse 44. And so the spiritual resurrection body, it's still a physical body. It's not wispy and ghost-like. So what was Paul refer, uh, meaning when he refers to our present bodies as natural? Well, he's referring to the domain where our bodies are suitable, are suitable, right? Our present bodies, they're natural, physical bodies. They're suited for life right now in this present world. The counterpart body in the resurrection, it's going to be a physical body, but it's one that is suited for a spiritual heavenly existence. So it will be physical, but it will be the opposite of natural. And as I already mentioned, the opposite of natural, if not ethereal, the opposite of natural is supernatural. It will indeed be a glorious body because it's going to be like Christ's own supernatural resurrection body. And that's why we should all be looking forward to our body's transformation and longing for our Savior's appearing. So how do we know the resurrection body will be a glorious body? Well, the first reason is first we look to Christ. The first fruits of the resurrection. Christ Himself demands a glorious body. Christ's existence as the eternally glorious Son of God, it demands that we have that He have an equally infinite body of great glory. Now, in the incarnation, right when when God, who is Spirit, became man, in this, the infinite person of the Son of God, at that time in the incarnation, He took on a human body. It was a natural body. It was fitted for life in this world. It had natural limitations, meaning that it could be subject to the same things all other natural bodies are subject to. Hunger, thirst, fatigue, suffering, death. Now, he no longer has a natural body. He was raised with a spiritual body that's suitable for him as the uncreated, eternal Son of God, which, which does not mean it wasn't physical, but that it had to be free from all the natural limitations. It is still a physical body, only it has been transformed by God's power to be suitable for all that Christ's purposes are. Everything that Christ is designed and planning to do in the eternal ages to become will be able to be done in the body He has now. A spiritual, supernatural Body, And that's Paul's whole point. Now look at verse 45. He says, So also it is written, 
He says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So, Paul continues to contrast here the natural and the spiritual body. And he's citing now from Genesis 2, verse 7, the creation account. He's going back to Genesis to continue to prove his point. He adds two words, though. You can look at it. If, if some of you, whenever I say this all the time, but the, the all caps are the references to the text that he's quoting from. But then you also see some other words around it. He adds two words. First, he says the first, that's not in the text, but man is. And then he adds who that first man is. He names him Adam. So he's just giving that as reference points. He's seeking to bring the focus here on the fact that there is a first Adam. But then he says there's also a last Adam. And the sense is that this is the ultimate Adam. This is Jesus Christ. He's all that that the first Adam was not and all that God meant for man to be. And Paul says the first Adam, he received life. He became a living soul in a natural body. The text then says the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, first of all, notice that the first Adam received life. He's a creature. Right? He, he didn't make life for himself. He received life. But then the text says, the last Adam, it says, became a life-giving spirit. Now, look in your Bibles again. I know this is in the New American. might not be in the other translations. But in the New American, what word is italicized? Became. The italics are the visual cue that says this word is inserted. It's not in the text. It's inserted for clarification. But unfortunately, I think it leads us in a... In a, it misdirects us. It simply, the, the text actually just simply says, it says, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So the idea that he became something, I think that's off base. Now, that doesn't mean these guys don't know what they're talking about, but it was inserted, and I think it doesn't quite capture the idea of what, of what Paul is actually saying. See, Christ possesses the glory of the uncreated creator. He doesn't receive life. He is self-existent. He gives life. He didn't become anything. He wasn't made anything. He has no beginning. He is the life-giving spirit. Back in chapter 15, if you look back at verse 22, right? As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. See, all will be made alive. Why? Because Christ is a life, the life-giving Spirit. So, Paul really, he's speaking here about the resurrection. And in the same way God breathed life into Adam, causing him to become a living soul in a natural body, Christ will give life to all in the resurrection because he is a life-giving Spirit. Only it won't be a natural body, it will be a spiritual body like that of the last Adam. Like the risen Christ. So let's be clear. Paul's not suggesting that we are going to become gods. That's not what he's saying. He's only talking in terms of Christ's humanity. His physical body. God the Son, he joined himself to a human nature and to a human body. And in the resurrection, that's still true. Only the body that he has, it has been transformed in its form so that it is now fitted for his manner of existence as the risen and eternal Lord. 
So just as through Adam we inherited our natural bodies, through Christ we will inherit spiritual, supernatural bodies. And that will be in the resurrection. And Adam's was the prototype, really, for our natural body. But Christ is the prototype of our spiritual bodies. And His body, therefore, it's the prototype of all who will be raised from the dead in Christ. But as Paul points out in verse 46, these opposite bodies, they are successive. He says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. I see every human being, starting with Adam and including the incarnate Christ, has begun life in this world in a natural, physical body with all of its earthly limitations. After Christ's natural body died on the cross, they laid Him in the tomb. That natural body was raised a spiritual and eternal body. And the fact that God determined from the beginning that the natural body would precede and anticipate the spiritual, this raises kind of an interesting question. It seems to suggest that God may have planned a transformation to Adam's natural body that would have taken place apart from him first dying. And why do I say this? Even before Adam's fall into sin, right? His body was natural. It was limited. But yet, if we look at Psalm 8, you can turn there if you'd like. Psalm 8. In verses 5 and 6, this is what the psalm says. He says about man, he says, Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. He's talking about man. Now, we've certainly seen a good degree of man's dominion on the earth, right? But this earth is not all. That is God's creation. Everything in the universe and beyond is God's creation. <clears throat> this psalm, it also mentions the, the heavens being the work of God, God's fingers. The moon, the stars, they're ordained by God. How could Adam in his natural limited body that he was given at creation, how could he rule over all that God had created? See, the question that, that raises is, was it God's original plan to, to transform man, Adam, from the natural to the supernatural apart from death? Because he was going to rule over all creation. It's a legitimate question, but it's, let's be honest, it's only something we can speculate about. Because as we know, God, Adam proved unfaithful in his sin. And as a result, God put Adam and Eve, He put them out of the garden to keep them from eating from the tree of life and living forever in a state of sin. God's plan is always best. We can't look at that and go, gosh, that would have been great. No, God had a better plan, and it was to introduce us to the grace and the love and the mercy of His Son, through, uh, of Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He came to do for sinners. Because that's what we all are as a result of Adam. We're sinners in need of a Savior. Well, God sent that Savior as a beautiful and a glorious plan. As ugly as it might be at times because of the sin in your life, it's a glorious Savior who came 
And we know more about the grace and the mercy of God as a result of His Son becoming man, taking on the burden of our sin and God punishing Him instead of us. And we would have never known that. We would have never known that if Adam had never fallen into sin. So it's, it's pure speculation. I get that. There's no way for us on this side of heaven to know if God was even considering that. It's just a curious possibility. Meanwhile, we remain limited in our natural bodies that are designed to exist only in our world. The risen Christ, however, He possesses a glorious supernatural body and it allows Him, as the infinite Son of God, the ability to do all that He desires. So the second reason that we know that we will have a glorious body in the resurrection is because we will, we will require a spiritual body. There's a heavenly existence. There's going to be heavenly purposes that God has. We're not just going to be strumming harps. God has a purpose for the life to come and we will require a spiritual body to do all that God requires. He says in verse 47, he says, The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. And so like in in verse 46, Paul, he is linking us both to Adam and to Christ. Both of them serve as our representative. Adam is the the representative man for all who have a natural body. And that was true of Christ when, when he was incarnated and became a man with his natural body. But... In his resurrection, Christ became the representative man for all who will have a spiritual body. The natural body and its corruptibility is what we have until the resurrection when we receive the spiritual. So in saying the first man is from the earth, Paul, he's not speaking of Adam's origin. Like he comes, you know, from a place called earth. He's speaking more so to his being created from the substance of the earth. And again, I think he just quoted from Genesis 2-7, so that's still in view here. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And so in this sense, Adam is earthy, he says. So it corresponds to having a natural body that is of this world. But Christ, who is the last Adam, verse 45, right? The second, Adam, the, the second man, verse 47, as a result of the resurrection, he is now from heaven, he says. He's no longer earthy as he was in his incarnation, but as a result of his resurrection, he is now from heaven. He's, we could maybe insert this word here. It seems appropriate to do so. He is heavenly. As, a, as the natural man is earthy, the second man from heaven is heavenly. He's heavenly in the sense that he's suited for an existence in the world to come, in heaven. And so the point of verse 47 is to show the contrast here between the first man, Adam, the second man, Christ. The first is made of substance of the earth and is suited for life on the earth. The second is heavenly and is suited for life in heaven. And then Paul says in verse 48, he says, as is the earthy so also are those who are earthy. In other words, all those who are of Adam are from the earth, they die, and they return to the earth. See, that's the fate of these earthy, corruptible bodies that belong to this present existence on the earth. And this 
Hearing this, the Corinthians wouldn't be bothered by that at all. They're like, of course, these bodies are failing. That's the whole point, Paul. Why would we have bodies like this in heaven? And so when they hear that that's what's going to happen to your earthly body, you're going to return to the earth, they're like, yeah, we know that, Paul. They wanted to be rid of their corruptible, perishable bodies. But then Paul adds the corresponding truth about the resurrection bodies that they're going to have. He says, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Yes, right? You are of Adam. Yes, you have corruptible bodies that must die, but you are also in Christ. And you share the likeness of now of the man of heaven. His resurrection has guaranteed that like him, you also shall be resurrected and you will inherit a physical body. Now, though, it will be made adaptable to a heavenly existence. Like you think back to the illustration of the seed in verse 38. The body that God gives you in the resurrection, it will be constituted. It will be constituted by God's creative power and it will be far beyond what you have now. It will be like Christ's body. It will be complete. It's, it's going to be in a completely different category. It's going to be not earthy. It's going to be heavenly. And it's going to have capabilities far beyond anything that you can conceive. He gives one more reason why we can expect a glorious body in the future. It's because Christ will give us a heavenly body. He's going to give us a heavenly body, right? He has a heavenly body. We're going to require a spiritual body. And thirdly, Christ is going to give us a heavenly body. So this is somewhat, somewhat what he's already said, but just to follow Paul's logic here, it's going to be glorious like Christ is glorious. It's that which is required for a heavenly life after this earthly life is over. He says in 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So Paul puts this transformation of our bodies clearly into the future at the resurrection. And Paul told the Corinthians much the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. Turn there. I think I just quoted it last week, but let's get our eyes on it. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 20 and 21. He says, for our citizenship is... It's in heaven. That's where we belong. That's where we're going to go. That's, that's where our Savior is from and where He returned to. And that's where He's bringing us. That's our home. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back. And we are eagerly awaiting Him. He may come back in this life. Several generations of Christians have wondered the same thing. And he has tarried. He, had delayed, he has delayed and he has his purposes. Chiefly his patience. So that all who are his would come to faith in Christ. And so we labor on in getting the gospel out. So that all who are of God's flock will come. But we're eagerly awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, and the idea is that when he comes... The Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state. The body of our humiliation that humiliates us further and further as we grow older. And it breaks down and can't do the things. That's why they have depend undergarments, friends. Because these bodies break down and they embarrass you. That's why. We all might be wearing them someday. For various reasons. So that we won't be humiliated 
in public. And he says, he's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. See, until that time, we continue to bear the image of the person of dust, Adam. Adam experienced a slow corruption of the body until he died. There is nobody made in the likeness of Adam who won't experience the same fate. We all share the same corruption of our bodies and we will all die sooner or later. You can't stop it. And, and you don't know when either. Sure, we all hope to die in our sleep in our 80s somewhere. But that may not be true for you. Children die every day. Adults in their prime are, are struck down by cancer or heart attacks every day. But as certain as death is for each of us, it is just as certain that all in Christ will have a glorified body in the resurrection. And in that body, the image that we bear will be that of the heavenly person of Christ who has subjected all things to Himself. He exerts His power in complete obedience to God. And in the same way, the bodies God will give us in the resurrection, they will be ones raised by His power to be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and supernatural. And we will have that same power as Christ's body by which we can serve and praise and glorify Him forever. It will be a heavenly, supernatural body, but it will also be physical. You know, Jesus stood amongst the disciples in His resurrection body and they could touch Him. He was recognizable to them. They could see the scars in His hands and in His side. And yet it says it was still hard for them to believe. They were so overcome with joy. They're like, is it really you? You know, something like that. And then Luke, in in, in chapter 24, he says this, that Jesus said to them, because he could see that they're still in disbelief. He says, you got anything to eat? So they gave him, "Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Jesus, we got some broiled fish. None of us had an appetite. And he took it and he ate it before them. You know, eating is already such a joy. It really is. It's one of the best parts of the day. You get to eat. Start out with some something crunchy and delicious in the morning, or maybe savory and hot, or something like that. You move on to lunch, and maybe you have a sandwich or something with rice or something like that. And then you go into dinner, and it's like, yeah, dinner. I'm hungry. I'm ready. And it's such a delight to sit down to good food. And I know there's plenty of you who would amen that. Oh, but these bodies—they just don't take well to eating over and over and over again. How wonderful such physical delights like eating will be in bodies that can't suffer and decay. You know why Jesus became a man? Do you know why He had a natural body? It was so that He could die a natural death. But in His death, Peter says, He Himself bore our sins in His body. On the cross. Why? 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by His wounds that you're healed. You must come to Jesus as your sin bearer. You must receive Him and the pardon that He offers to you. Because all the dead are going to be raised, not just those in Christ. Those in Christ are going to be raised to life in bodies that will last forever. Those who are apart from Christ will be raised to a resurrection of judgment in bodies that will last forever. But not with Christ, apart from Him. And not in heaven, but in hell. A place that the Scriptures say a lot about. If anyone tries to tell you hell doesn't exist, don't listen to them. They're lying. They're keeping back from you. Satan, ultimately, is the one keeping it back from you because one of the greatest motivators to turn to Christ is to flee from hell where we all know we, should, we belong because of our sin. And Jesus is offering a hand to you. He's saying, receive my pardon. I died in your place. Receive my pardon. I died. I became a man so I could take your place so that you don't have to be separated from me forever in hell with bodies that where the worm, he calls it, the worm dies not. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. That does not say, oh, maybe next time. There is no next time. It's appointed that man die once and after this comes judgment. Come and receive the pardon that He offers to you. He died. But he, raised, he was raised again. And His body was transformed from the natural to the supernatural. From the perishable to the imperishable. From weak to powerful. And the same will be true for all who die in Christ. But until then, until that day, be steadfast. Immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do need to be reminded of these truths. It is all too easy to be not landlocked, but earthlocked like a salmon trapped in some landlocked lake that can't get to the ocean, we can become like that, earth-locked, thinking that there's nothing beyond, or forgetting, or not really counting on it, or not living in light of it. Oh, don't let that be true. There will be... I don't know if there's going to be regret in heaven. I don't know how that's going to work out. I just know that... You're telling us this now so we'll live in light of it. We'll, we'll work. We'll toil in Your name knowing it's not in vain because there is a resurrection to come. So expend ourselves. Tire out and exhaust these, these limited earthly bodies because a new one's coming in which we'll never grow tired. And thank You for telling us these things now so we can live in light of them. Amen.